Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome to another edition of uh, Resolve Riffs. It is my pleasure to have uh, Jeff Winnegar, the uh, Director of Asset Allocation on from Wisdom Tree. And uh, Jeff's one of the uh, one of the, the few Renaissance men that I will associate with. And, uh, and we're looking forward to a wide ranging conversation on all things that are macro and micro and all the all the crows. And um, I just want to remind everybody that this is a happy hour session. So, you know, cheers. I have a, a nice tequila cheers. with soda water and limes and strawberries. It's like a bowl of fruit and a, and a, and a bomb of tequila. So um, it's adventurous of you today. Yeah, I am. I'm really feeling adventurous. I, I, I said, I want to let it loose and let the imagination fly. So having said that, let's make sure everyone understands this is for entertainment purposes. And if you're going to get investment advice, don't get it here, <laughs> but you can have some fun here. So uh, with that, um, yeah, what's going on, Jeff? What are you looking at these days? What's got you? Did you uh, even introduce Jeff? Oh, I did. I did. You were, you were getting a drink. Oh, you, I were getting, you, you were at the bar. All right. Okay, good. I did introduce sure. Jeff. Famous as he is, obviously, you know, uh, omnipresent on Bloomberg, CNBC, yeah, um, and all, all the kids shows Sesame Street, um, <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure in case you've been hiding on a rock, you don't know Jeff. Here he is, and Jeff is um, the perennial host of of the Chiefs Lunch, right? Which uh, uh, Mike and I and Rodrigo have had the pleasure of attending over the years um, in Toronto, and I guess you you probably host those all over the country and all over the U.S. and maybe all over the world, eh? Yeah, yeah, we well, you know, with with COVID nineteen, obviously that came to a screeching halt. But I, that's one of the things I really enjoy about the um, the job is getting around and doing basically what we're doing right here, uh, except physically around a table, talking strategy, talking markets, and really going in any direction that might be relevant to people that are just thinking about the world. And and that's one of the things about being in the investment business is suddenly we are all four of us and every every single person who's had the, had thinking about dialing into this on a Friday afternoon. We've all become amateur epidemiologists, right? Before that, we were we were amateur experts on Greek politics, right? And then after after that, we became amateur experts on on British politics, and and on and on it goes down the road. Uh, and it, you just really have to think about, you know, what is your view on the entire world when you're thinking about investing these days? And so those lunches are fantastic. I enjoy them because you. You put a bunch of people around the table that are just brilliant, and then you basically shut your own trap and just listen to what they have to say. And so, you know, it's been fun having you guys at those. And you know, we've talked about everything in those in those lunches. You know, from you think you're talking about street consensus on S and P earnings, but next thing you know, you're talking about um, U.S. drug policy or anything that might be topical at the time. So, well, there's anyway. no shortage of opinions. That's for sure. <laughs> Everyone absolutely has some thoughts on you know. Uh, High, high conviction opinions, very loosely held. <laughs> Everybody has a view. Everybody has a view. But, um, you know, I mean, basically, you're, this is my layer right here. These, these screens, this is, this is the, the, the nexus of operations these days. And we're, 
you know, trying to get a, a handle on COVID as much as the next person, um, trying to get a handle on not necessarily what you think. It's just like with the market. It's not what you think about valuations or what you think the market is going to do. It's what you think everybody else is going to think. Oh, my God. You're going to give Nike a chance to use his Keynes beauty contest <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, that's beauty. Yes, it catches <laughs> it. It describes everything. It, it subsumes it all. <laughs> so, all right. So what's, what, what are you looking at in the beauty contest right now? I mean, what, what is kind of six page or page six news or page 13 news that you think may move to page six and then may move to move to page two or, or page one right now? And it depends on if you're talking micro 2020 or whether you're talking generational. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of something that I've been throwing out on the table. I don't know if it's first drink stuff or fourth or fifth drink stuff. <laughs> you leave that to us. But I mean, everyone, and I mean everyone, is looking around their own household in a in a COVID third quarter of 2020 world, and then extrapolating out to 2025 or 2030 from that. And in some regards, they're absolutely correct. Work from home, for example, and in other regards, they're completely. I, I think completely missing the piece. So I'll give you an example. In this household, we have a, a small army of children. And it is an absolute bear right now to work, put in the hours that you want to work, and then also function as a school teacher. And so there's a notion going around that, yes, the marginal propensity to procreate will collapse on account of COVID. I know you guys probably want to talk about money supply or, or, or the stock market, but to hell with <laughs> right it. Population <laughs> growth is everything. Population growth is everything. I thought it was about procreation. <laughs> okay, all right. So. <laughs> okay, so you think about Jeff and Jessica Weniger. Would they want to have another baby, right? And, and the next door neighbor or what, whatever the case may be. And right now, the opportunity cost feels very, very it's a, it's a big obstacle. It's a brick, big brick wall because of the world is in disarray. There's job insecurity and so on. But beyond this, and I this was something I was tweeting about the other day, actually, to to essentially no response. I didn't know whether anybody wants to be on, on the record saying we think that the, the Western world may see a population growth rate or a rise in infertility because it's been basically, you know, for 40 or 50 years on the on the wane. Even though when you look at those charts, it's not a it's not a, a, an absolute decline. There are bumps along the way where it ticks up. I mean, you, you've saw you've seen, for example, in the last quarter century, the Swedes and the French, for example, did manage to have pronatalist policies kick in a little bit. Um, and I would note the side note, which is the carbon footprint issue, where you know people the more children there are, the more difficult it would be to fight um, climate change. But what I'm what I'm getting at is I don't think that anybody is thinking deep, deeply enough about what does your household dynamic look like in 2022 or 2023. Once one or both of those cohabitating partners are now able to completely eliminate everything that was such the bane of their existence pre-COVID, for me, walk over there to the red line, put my face in some guy's armpit. Slide the red line down to the loop. Be in an office where maybe my productivity is not not tip top because these guys, you know, we see the basketball game last night, this type of thing. 
come back on the red line or the brown line, walk again. Oh, some kid has soccer practice, but now I'm stuck in traffic going to soccer practice because it's Lakeshore Drive. I, I, by the way, I'm making references to the city of Chicago for the listeners because Lakeshore Drive is stuck, but the soccer practice is three hours away. All of these things are things that in the near term you see as an inhibitor to your desire to have the next child. Once you start to whittle those things away, well, there's no more traffic. It's easy to get to a five o'clock practice, especially if you're sitting here in a t-shirt and shorts. All of these things start to whittle away, which is the near-termism that, that you know, the one marshmallow now, the two marshmallows in 15 minutes thing that, they, that the scientists did 40 or 50 years ago. All of the dividends that you get down the road from having a Thanksgiving dinner in the year 2040 with a brood of children around the table. All of those things start to present themselves and all of the issues that you had trying to get these kids to school at eight o'clock in the morning and then still be able to do your emails on it. It's, it's one. And the reason a huge, a huge, you know, quantum leap here, right? Like <laughs> people are at home on Twitter. Everyone's, excuse my dog. Um, on Twitter, everybody's panicking about the plans for school reopening, right? I mean, they're going on alternate days or different grades on different days or different times of the day or whatever. There's this huge panic. You've got two spouses who want to get out to work. At the same time, you got to have a child home on, mm -hmm. on odd days. How are we closing the gap? I mean, I, I'm hearing you describe this, um, you know, quasi-utopian future of everybody <laughs> able to live on their own schedules, operate out of their households, which, you know, I mean, obviously some fraction of us can do, are, are managing to do, I think, quite well at the moment. And I think we can all sort of see, or many of us can see how that will improve over time. But there's still a lot of just um, concrete realities of the logistics of managing a family while also trying to get out or, you know, two spouses having to be productive at home or et cetera. How, how are we crossing that chasm? Or bringing a vaccine in between those two events, I think, might be uh, part of that equation that he's uh, Jeff is getting at. Well, and and the thing is, is that you know the, the question about that vaccine that the British just warned the other day that this might have to be a seasonal thing that you're going to have to go every autumn and get a re up because these antibodies are going to wane on you. It'd be a uh, but that's only a logistical problem. It's a minor nuisance if you just have to do that for run that errand once. Vaccine. Yeah, it would be like doing that, and you'd have to get two or three sessions, and that that might be part of the new reality. And and you know, if you think Adam about there is there is a, a pretty well known documentation that the, the the hurricane effect that's oftentimes talked about with with babies that that's not going to happen this year um, for for several reasons. When there's the job insecurity right near in your face at the moment, you are not necessarily saying, "Let's go have another baby." Um, but I do think that out beyond this, um, it does start to become almost that, you know, you use the word utopia. I don't, I don't know that it's a utopia because there is a large swath of the populace will not be able to do that. Right. You know, for example, well, that, that's work, what I was thinking. She has to physically be at work because she's walk, working down at the hospital campus. Okay. But I don't. And so really only all it takes is and this is some of the examples that, that we were giving is, is you don't actually need both of the cohabitating partners to be able to work from home. You just need one to change a lot of the dynamics. And so one of the things that I was writing about is, I mean, there, I, I gave three examples. One example was, uh-oh, somebody has a job in Milwaukee, somebody has a job in Chicago. 
which that's a common thing around here. And so you live in, in a middle city. The other example I gave was uh, a young couple in Brooklyn who has now decided to go to upstate New York. And then the other example is just moved away from wherever back home was for a job opportunity and now able to go back home. So if you think about that third one, which I think is critical. So, I mean, I've seen this, you've all seen this through the years. You guys, you know, Toronto. Okay. So somebody's from Mississauga. They, they came to downtown Toronto or, or, you know, change it. They came from across the country. So they were in Calgary and moved to Toronto to, to, to pursue a career. In so doing, they've gotten away from their sister and their brother and their mother and father, as well as the spouse's sister and brother and mother and father are back in Calgary. Right here we have in Chicago. I mean, everybody that, you know, this one's from Indiana. This one's from Wisconsin. This one's from Michigan. You know, you're in Chicago because that's where the job was. You want to be back in Ann Arbor where your sister lives. You move next door to your sister. Now suddenly you're combining daycare uh, uh, forces, right? Maybe you get somebody to come in. Watch your sister's kids and watch your kids. You just cut your daycare bill by 50%. And, and what we know is that for many households, the daycare bill can be higher than the rent bill, right? I mean, what does it cost to put a single kid in a, into a daycare or to have a home worker come in and watch two or three kids? It's prohibitively expensive. It's yeah. For Americans, it's the equivalent of, of university tuition. And a lot of this is melting away. And so I think that there's a, at least a possibility that we could hypothesize that in an out year, 2022, 2024, 2026, the birth rate that had slipped below 2.06 replacement, 2.06 babies per woman uh, as, as being stable population, and had been slipping you know, 1.9 or so in the United States, that maybe all of these demographers are completely wrong because I don't know, maybe one of you guys knows the number, but how many of us are working from home? I, it's tens of millions in the United States alone um, and I just, I think about it from this household, we have this infant. I've never had such a smooth sailing experience with an infant of all of our children. Um, reason being, Mike, I'm not going down to Midway to catch an early quarter flight to land at Billy Bishop to go talk to you guys at an 8.30 or 9 a.m. breakfast, which I just got four hours of sleep and maybe the baby was crying. I'm right here in Chicago talking. So, so what do you, how do you, how do you think about the counterbalance of that though? The, the fact that I believe now I'm speculating, but I believe that population growth generally comes from sort of the lower middle um, class structure. So there's a socioeconomic factor about how many kids are, are being had. And then if you look at that area and you look at the job insecurity that they have had or may continue to have in that, in that sort of domain, I wonder if there isn't a contraction in um, the birth rates in, in that cohort that might offset some of the, you know, sort of the, I'll call it white collar, I guess. Um, yeah. Potential for a birth rate increase. White collar as well. It, it's, you know, we have, okay, when you look at this, at the, the, the chart, and I actually put this out on Twitter uh, within the last couple hours. Um, continuing claims data in the United States. Okay. It blows the global financial crisis out of the water. Okay? Does it ever? So if you thought we had an employment problem or a societal issue that gave rise to um, Occupy Wall Street and so on in the wake of 0809, that is a cakewalk compared to this. We yeah. Put GDP these- print wasn't pretty either. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, just it's like all these other charts where it's just... Mm-hmm. Um, and you're looking at 17 million on continuing claims. 
And you're exactly right. How long is it going to take everyone to get the, to get that down to a steady state of two or three or four million people continuing? Because you always have some level of the population on unemployment mm-hmm. uh, based on labor rigidity. Um, how many years might that take? Because out of work people do not try to have children. Right. And so yeah. that is I think you've, you've nailed the, the countervailing force right there. That is the, the single largest issue. Um, and that, that really boils down to just how much stimulus we're putting back into the system. And it kind of goes to a lot of the stuff that we're, we're talking about with with money supply and the sheer extent of, of fiscal and monetary stimulus to try to get small businesses to keep people from uh, from from you know, getting getting can really and and um the problem is is that what looked like a an improvement in the labor markets for about three three months running is starting to roll over at this point jeff just a heads up your audio's um a little bit unsteady so if you i don't know if you can lean in a little bit or my audio it sounds like you've got a little bit of background noise being picked up by your microphone some like white noise or something Mm -hmm. i don't know it just kind of forces your voice down a little bit Oh, I, we'll have to see how that goes. We'll see. Yeah, that's it, when you lean in a little bit more, it, it corrects that. Okay. Level, so. I don't want anyone to miss those pearls, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be dropping. Wisdom, right? Well, right. It, and I think one of the things that you uh, you put out on on Twitter that I thought was interesting as well is is sort of the valuations on some of the some of the mega caps that are mm-hmm. you know so beloved and so owned, and maybe you can expound on that a little bit. What it means to you know have something trading at above 10 times its sales and what yeah. like, what are the implications for that because i think that's and maybe underappreciated the market too yeah right? that combination is interesting i will say just that, add say that again adam say it again well just just huge companies trading at large multiples to to sales you know relative to both history and to other um companies in the market and then have such a large fraction of total market cap you know, uh, focused in those, in some of those companies. It's, it's just a, yeah. it's a strange for you a lot. I will just add the caveat before you jump in, Jeff, that uh, how surprising was the earnings beat that we had for, for some of these mega caps, particularly uh, Amazon and Apple. Yeah. They, uh, so, so that was pretty, uh, for, for the bears, it was really a cold shower right there. So I would just kind of temper the, the, the view with that, uh, Re, re-upping of expectations towards those mega caps again. Yeah, and there was there was three or four of them today, and then the opposite side of the coin was, I mean, this was basically the growth versus value question, and it was Chevron and somebody else in the energy patch just totally laid an egg too, which was the other side of it. And that's, that is the, the, the trade-off. You know, there's, okay, so there's several things going on. There's the, there's the movement towards ESG, for one, and, and to the ESG being environmental, social, and governance um, uh, parameters, and so gender equity, uh, carbon footprint, these concepts within it within a, a corporate realm. And to the extent that those types of big tobacco issues confront value stocks and energy, right? I mean, it's like the, it's the tobacco of this era. That's the other side of the trade. I mean, so you've you've seen the, the move into you're making references to Silicon Valley here. They tend to be on the right side of the coin generally when it comes to ESG issues, right? Being socially progressive and so forth. And then you see them all getting bid up. A firm like Tesla at $270 billion is theoretically uh, at the forefront of the green revolution that we would all want to be ushering in. 
um, theoretically. Um, and I, I say that theoretically because we don't know whether or not um, some of the methods by which you would put together the components of the battery are ne necessarily ethical, namely, who is actually physically getting the cobalt out of the Democratic Republic of Congo? We know that we have we have uh, Elon Musk saying we will ethically source it from megacorps as opposed to the 20% of the cobalt that's actually taken by school children by hand in what is essentially a quasi-slave trade and who act who is buying that illicit cobalt only rogue nations. It would seemingly be um, the Chinese Communist Party that's doing that. So there's all these other moving parts within ESG as well that perhaps are not necessarily considered when we speak about just to speak to, to battery technology. One of the things that I think confronts us, and, and Mike, you said something about the 10 times sales references, the Microsoft at 11 times sales, you have Facebook at nine times sales. And we've been kind of um, joking with respect to, to Facebook. I mean, you, you probably can't see in the lighting. I have this silver hair. So I'm not, I'm not exactly a, <laughs> I'm not exactly a young buck. And I say this as someone who I, I feel like maybe I was the, it's so cliche to mention Orwell. I was the only one that actually read it in 1984 and got freaked about it apparently because I've never been on Facebook. I'm only on it by proxy on account of Jessica is on Facebook with the kids and all this. So I, if somebody from high school wanted to find me, they could find me by being the last name but the issue that I have with Facebook that I've said is, you know, it's it's Facebook and it's WhatsApp, it's Oculus, right? And it's Instagram. That's the business model. The joke is, if you're concerned about Facebook valuations, let's talk about it. Hit me up on MySpace, right? Hit me up on Friendster and we can chat about this. <laughs> 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 because, because, I mean, was it today or was it yesterday that Trump, basically said, we're going to force um, the Chinese to liquidate the U.S. arm of TikTok uh, on account of TikTok is essentially uh, a spying arm uh, for, the for the party. And so one of the things that's critical is we sit here and we're talking about, oh, Facebook beat the street and Apple beat the street. But we had four uh, of the executives of the, basically the fangs, right? The, 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 the main yep. names on the top of the S&P 500 pulled in front of Congress. What was that yesterday, Tim? I mean, yeah, I was just going to say to the Hill. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you go back in the annals of history. I mean, we did defenestrate Microsoft 20 years ago uh, when Microsoft was on top of the world. It's on top of the world again. And it didn't really hinder the business prospects of that. And they just put a bid in for TikTok's uh, U.S. business. I don't know if you saw it. just before we went uh, on live. Apparently they're buying up TikTok's U.S. business. Oh, I'm sure that's just a coincidence of that policy. Yeah, um, Microsoft just put in a bid. You see, this is what I'm this is what I'm talking about because you know we had, um, oh, okay, help me, guys. Uber, Uber, Uber in the delivery space was going to buy DoorDash, or, yeah. or the, help me, guys, help me yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, it was it, DoorDash, and and so that was the number one and number three player, I believe, and then we, you know. We're all supposed to just take that and say, oh, that's fine. Number one, let's just accumulate number three and let's just like let that happen. And, you know, I think about, okay, so what would that be in soft drinks? That would be Coca-Cola buying Dr. Pepper Snapple, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Are we cool with that? We're just totally fine with that. Let's just yeah. let that I mean, and so, you know, you get to this point where, okay, that's news. You just laid that one on me. Why is that? that Microsoft needs more power. We, we need Microsoft to have more societal power. 
And one of the things that I think is a bear case for the top of the S&P 500, fellas, is it doesn't matter who you pull into your living room to talk about this issue. I can get a Berkeley leftist in here. I can get a Trump voting right winger in here. And they are universally, there's only two issues that those two camps are together on. Be tough on China. And can we do something about Silicon Valley? That's the only Tech two clash. But the antitrust regulators has, have stepped out. They went out to buy some smokes about 20 years ago and they never came back, right? So yeah, that's, that's, that's been going on. And then there's, I mean, look, here's, here's the other side of it, okay? And, and you, have a, you have a strong argument if you, if you lay this one on me. They say if you break up Amazon, the sum of the parts is worth more than the business right now. So maybe I'm on here saying, uh, you know, that there's a matter of time before they, they try to, to take a crack at Amazon. And maybe that ends up helping Amazon shareholders. And I'm just dead wrong. I mean, you gotta, we have to think open-mindedly about these things. Um, uh, you know, in Amazon. Though, right? Like if you go back to the Nifty 50 back in the <clears throat> or if you go back to the Nifty 50. The, the baby bells. Yeah. Then then clearly we're the, the conglomerates. Um, so the the conglomerates, and it was a different um, structural relationship between the components, right? But they definitely tried to create these sort of quasi-monopolies without a vertical integration mm -hmm. that the big tech giants have, right? They really just wanted to have big diversified businesses within or under a single umbrella. And that's not quite the same as the, the current paradigm with the big the big tech giants. But still, we had this situation where you had a lot of different franchises, big, powerful franchises under a single roof, sharing economics. Um, there was a strong antitrust uh, movement in the early 70s. They broke these guys up. Yeah. And clearly the, this nifty 50 conglomerate phase of the markets was, was very good for markets. And the breakup of these big conglomerates was a period that was where stocks underperformed. Now, you know, there's a lot of narratives you can spin around that, right? We had lots of macroeconomic dynamics competing for explanatory power on, on some of this, but certainly we can say there has been precedent for big monopoly style conglomerates that were broken up. It was a, it was a sun and roses or wine and roses when they were operating as conglomerates and when they broke them up, it was a much less favorable time for equities. Now, I don't know if there's a, certainly there's lots of competing dynamics, but there's precedent. There's what no I find show. so interesting about that is, is just some coincidences to another very interesting period where the robber barons became so, um, such a concentration of wealth occurred. So we now have a concentration of wealth that rivals the period of the robber barons. What were the what were the sort of coincident factors? Well, you had technologies that were evolving at a pace that there were no rules for. How how are you going to regulate having a railroad? So you're 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 taking a horse and buggy across the nation, then you put a railroad in, and so that railroad was sort of the uh, the fiber optic run of 1999 2000, where you know at the end. There was lots of bankruptcies in the railroad. There's lots of bad stuff that was done, but you could get from New York to San Francisco in about you know four or five days, and and the same thing happened with the the race for fiber optic, and then you have all of these resulting businesses. You have Standard Oil, you have the steel uh, uh, meccas, 
you have all of these things sort of happening at the same time. Regulation is behind the the the, the pace because the the evolution of the technology is so quick. There is no regulation. So if you look at mm-hmm. regulation in any other business other than technology, it's pretty significant. We're in finance. How's that regulation treating you since 1929, right? And then you go into technology, and there is none because it's all greenfield. It's all brand new. How are you going to regulate? Yeah. And so you you guys just mentioned so many things that I want to hit on. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's let's go for it. The baby bells. Uh, I wanted to mention something about General Electric in there. Um, And then also now I've got Section 230 of of the um, uh, Communications Act in my mind, too, with reference to the tech stuff. So let's hit all of those. Um, One of the things, Adam, if I'm not mistaken, I think the great case study is ITT, which was the big conglomerate. Uh, from the Nifty 50 and building it up because the more you acquired firms, the more your some of your parts, uh, because there was this belief system in the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken, that the conglomerate was, was the way to run a business. And then that all did come apart. Uh, one of the things that was so critical was that 73-74 crash of the stock market. So the S&P, the Dow, whatever you want to look at from 1973-74, it lost half of its value. Um, but it was really the top of the market that that died the most then um and i it was so funny i i somebody did make an eastman kodak nifty 50 reference on the web yesterday and it beat me to the punch because i was i was trying to think of something witty to say about that eastman kodak was one of the nifty 50 right um, uh, which is just i mean of course they had they invented um, digital photography in 75 and totally missed that boat which is critical to remember because when you think about the firms that were and we're talking now about you know Facebook and Microsoft, which are just total dynamos and Google, now you think back then, going back fifty years, uh, Xerox was just top of the world. Uh, we, we, you know, Eastman Kodak was nice. Sears Roebuck, when we used to call it Sears Roebuck, Roebuck, these were um, top of the heap. There's General Harvester, I believe, is in that group. There's a bunch of them that just died on the vine. For, for many, many years on account of valuations at the time. Now, thinking about some of the others, the, the more recent conglomerates was we had a $500 billion valuation on General Electric at the turn of the century. Um, and I don't even want to know what General Electric's market cap is now, guys. Uh, it's um, just a complete fall from grace and just a, a, a real question as to whether or not Jack Welch was really the brilliant mind that he was made out to be. Um, and then the other thing that, that you guys mentioned here that I thought was so critical was, was, you know, Mike, when you were talking about the technology is going faster than we can even catch up. We're, we're operating on this 20th century regulatory regime with respect to journalism. It's it's left us. Yeah, well, that's a whole other really super. Yeah, interesting topic. I was going to mention the, the, the idea that there's an added layer of complication here, which is the, the idea of free speech. And Twitter isn't put in that conversation because it's not a mega cap, but it, it is perhaps the uh, uh, most widespread uh, uh, vehicle for information uh, yeah. use right now. And how Facebook and Twitter have both been this sort of uh, uh, point of controversy on both sides of the aisle. And so you would imagine that there's some kind of regulation on the horizon because everybody's accusing the other side of of regulating speech and things like that. So that's an added layer of complication that I'm I'm assuming when the the regulatory hammer comes down, that's going to be a big part of that equation. Yeah, I mean, you just think about whenever whenever you're talking about existential risk to, to theses, it's um, you know there was a there was a time about a year ago where one of the the, the risks to 
um, investing in the Middle East was, oh, wow, the, they're going to allow individuals to sue, to sue this, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for 9-11 and that that could upset diplomatic relations, for example. And now one of the issues is, OK, can you cut down a valuation of a Facebook on, oh, Jeff Weniger has been defamed on Facebook and Facebook was doing whatever. And, you know, you got Trump is saying this and Marco Rubio is saying that you have Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, too. And so it's like everybody. Um, and you say, OK, well, now we can sue Facebook. Uh oh, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a re I mean, suddenly the business model has been thrown in and again, it goes back to, or the kids just treat that one like they did friends during MySpace. That's the, like, we were well, just I think there's, so is the assertion that they are actually legitimately content businesses, right? Like that we can equate Facebook and the New York times. Cause I mean, I think, I think there are some clear um, differences that we can point to that are, I mean, obviously New York times pays reporters reporters create content on behalf of New York Times, New York Times publishes them. Whereas I don't think you can say that anybody pays Facebook contributors. But Facebook actually just inked that deal with BuzzFeed and the New York Times to pay them for their content. Um, and I don't know who else might've been in that. So you, so you, now have this, you now basically have this, you know, I'm sitting here, I got my, my paper newspaper down there. All it's done is it's transferred from that paper that's sitting on the floor to this, it's rather than me reading the New York Times here, I'm just reading it on Facebook.com. Mm -hmm. And so where is it all mixing in? It's just one of these issues where you kind of get this at market extremes where anything that's on the table, do I think maybe the general public will be able to sue Facebook? Maybe, maybe not. What, do I think the kids are going to dump uh, Instagram and go to the next thing? Maybe not. I mean, they haven't. They're still doing it. They did fall in love with TikTok. Um, and so, but you just kind of get to this point in markets where, oh, uh, let's just completely d ignore existential risks. Uh, you know, I, I've got Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Pepsi's, you know, sitting here in the next store over. We're going to make believe Pepsi's not there. Like, it's just a matter of time before the kids find find something new that they're engaged in. And, and the other thing that I think is critical, guys, is to the extent that in the post-crisis world, it was all about there's a lack of growth and it's a disinflationary trend. Therefore, buy tech stocks. So it was disinflationary. So you wanted to be long USD, you want to be long US growth, US tech stocks, and then everything you didn't want to have was the opposite side of that trade. Any emerging currency you didn't want, emerging equities you didn't want. You didn't want anything in fossil fuels because you had a Well, no, I mean, it, it turns out ex post that you didn't want any of those things, right? That the disinflationary tech-oriented growth theme was the only game in town. So it only was game in town. It was tech oriented growth and everything else. And so every other attempt at diversification, whether it was diversification within US stock market or diversification around a variety of global other asset classes, either internationally or into stuff like commodities or factor investing or what have you, everything else experiences um, huge redemptions, major major headwinds, in contrast to U.S. oriented tech growth, which yeah. captures all of the economics and all of the market cap and valuation expansion. How much is the Fed's role in this the primary driving force? The whole idea of Tina and and you know the the expansion of monetary base and 
uh, lower rates into uh, eternity? How much is that driving all of that? All yeah, of that and, and Tina being there is no alternative. That's a ref the reference you just made. And I think that's absolutely critical. Whenever you have something that, when you're talking about regime change, I mean, look at what, in the last 60 to 120 seconds, what were we talking about? Big macro, right? U.S. dollar, tech, growth stocks. We weren't talking about, about what we are doing before to Twitter and Facebook. Micro. Macro has been that the Fed has been able to inflate away without any real effect here on, on everyday consumer prices, or so that goes the thesis. And in order to get big regime changes, U.S. dollar off, people buying emerging markets again, whatever the case may be, you have to have something generationally upsetting, something that really rocks us. Maybe it was COVID-19. I mean, it was seen to me that COVID-19 is that thing. One of the things that I think is uh, a little disturbing is that we have so indoctrinated ourselves into this belief system that, oh, yes, the Western world has a graying society. Therefore, we can never have inflation because I said it myself 500 times. Therefore, I believe it. Right. I, if I can get you to say something enough, you'll believe it. I can tell you that the sky is green and you'll start to marginally believe that. And so we all do this to ourselves. We're getting old. We're only 10 or 15 years behind Japan. Japan can't get any inflation. Well, I'm here to tell you, um, you expand that money supply large enough by enough of an amount, you'll get inflation. And I use this example. Well, you're already well, seeing the U.S. US dollar. dollar. U.S. dollar US depreciates. Dollar you're going to see inflation in the U.S. US. Mike, Mike, I've been I've been warning people. One of the things is, you know how sometimes things build on, on, on themselves. We get that dollar index, which is at 93. Okay, so you have to picture the dollar index. It spiked to 104. It's at 93 now. You get that to touch 89 and change. Then... Here comes the headlines. Oh, we just lost Mike. We don't care about Mike anyway. You, you get that dollar index down to 89. Then the headline's going to be dollar touches 11-year low. That might be enough to perpetuate a dollar bear story. Now, granted, everybody's a dollar bear, right? Everybody. So maybe we're, we're all wrong. It's going to go surging. But sooner or later, it starts to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody says, oh, COVID's doing work from home, and so they buy work from home. And that was a self-fulfilling prophecy, building on something that's been going on Growth stocks have been going on for 13, 14 years now. Um, and so that's I always get it wrong when I come in on the 14th year of a bull market. But usually when I get really excited to go all in, never, it's not worked yet. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, it's so funny because we've been, we've been unwinding that commodity super cycle um, since when, when crude oil blew out. That was the summer of 08 at this point. Yeah. But, you know, it, one of the things that I think is so funny um, about perceptions, and, and I tell it to anybody who will listen to me, is, okay, the box of Kellogg's cornflakes down at my Jewel Osco is the same price as it was 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess to take a train ticket in Chicago, it's still 275 and it's been that way since we moved here 14 years ago. But we have runaway healthcare expenditures. Education. We have bring up a chart of the Mannheim US used vehicle index, which is now spiked. It looks like the gold chart. The used vehicle price index by Mannheim looks like a chart of gold. It's unbelievable. I'm talking about things that actually matter. Kellogg's cornflakes doesn't matter. That's four dollars. 
a new car because your other one broke down and you got and you need to go in your pocket for 10 or 15 or twenty thousand dollars and you have three hundred and seventy two dollars in your bank account it matters because you got to go because you have to take out five percent lending at, at 60 months or score or, or 72 months or 84 months is the type of stuff they're doing tuition i mean that i mean we don't need to go down that path you guys know that story so healthcare tuition auto prices Median, uh, median existing homes, a home that's already been constructed that you're buying from the previous family, pushing 300K in the United States now. Okay, everything that matters is in inflation. The S&P 500 is at 3,200. And that's a that's a five bag. Bonds are in a bull market. Silver's in a bull market. Copper's going to be $3 again. Everything's going up. <laughs> and we talked about inflation. There's no inflation. It, it seems to me um, it's 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 like we're just looking at headline cpi and not not paying attention to stuff that's actually breaking families i i i i i tend to agree and then i and then i'll and then i'll just jekyll and hide that and i'll say well but still look at the labor force that we have coming online look at how we can still export a lot of that inflation the production whatever we can get that done elsewhere uh, but again and then i come back and say well if the u.s dollar is lower then all of that stuff that you're exporting isn't quite as cheap as it used to be in an absolute fashion. Um, so it's an interesting, I, I go down this circle and I'm like, I don't know where I fall on this. I don't, I don't know. You're, if talking, about, you're talking about a pre-COVID world because right. with deglobalization yeah. and the cold war yeah. that is starting to really ramp up and, and, and all the trade policies that we've seen during the Trump uh, presidency, I don't, I don't know how able, uh, the U.S. Yeah. is is to uh, export. You start that. to repatriate those supply chains, and all of a sudden, probably things get a little bit more expensive. There is there is a a, a school of thought on this one is that uh, Biden becomes victorious, and then the West has to form a coalition against an isolated China, and that therefore suddenly Biden is on the next plane to to Berlin to perhaps make nice with the Germans on trade negotiations, for example. I mean that seemingly. Seemingly, seemingly, trade relations with Europe or Canada or Mexico would be improving under a Biden administration. Now you just need to prognosticate the the, the probability of Biden, which I think is critical for for discussion. Now, if you look at, um, um, and I'll say this: when we look at the Biden campaign page, you know, it, it's it's so it's so difficult to kind of gauge because remember, Biden needs to win the upper Midwest. So he has to be tough on China, um, but is it a reincarnation of the Obama administration, or is it maybe a continuation of the Trump administration? Much to our surprise, maybe you might you could argue something like that, where China is on the person on the streets' radar now. I mean, go back ten or twenty years and ask, ask somebody you went to, to high school with, well, you know, what do you think about China, the rise of China? And like, ah, oh, it's great. Soon there'll be democracy, or I don't really give it much thought. And now everybody gives it a thought, right? that China is a perhaps a hostile actor, or at least the Chinese Communist Party is a hostile actor. And so, you know, now you have Biden entering the fray and yes, US Chinese trade relations are on the wane under what, what you stated, which is a deglobalization concept between China and its foes. But now maybe, you know, Joe Biden is in Ottawa you know, maybe working on trying to clear up all the issues and, and shake some hands and play some golf and go down to, go down to Mexico and make make nice with with the other trading. The point is though, you're not those types of relationships don't 
achieve the same type of labor arbitrage disinflation that you get yeah. from outsourcing to the developing world, right? You yeah. may get labor or, or pr- productivity expansion from stuff like capital investment and automation, right? So there's other ancillary um, dynamics that might play a, a pretty large role. But what you don't have is that same sort of almost endless disinflationary force that you experienced over the sort of 2003 to, mm-hmm. to 2012 period um, for global manufacturing, where they, we just moved all of our major manufacturing to the developing world and took advantage of the fact that there was such a disparity in wages. Well, that, that's a great, that's a great point, Adam. It's not, it's not, it's not an absolute thing. It's a relative thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Relatively speaking, the advantage is not as great as it was 20 years ago. Like yeah. It, or, or it needs to come from another dynamic, right? Again, right. maybe you're displacing workers in the developing world because you need to preserve your low costs. The only way you can do that is by investing in infrastructure in automation and technology now at zero rates, mm-hmm. you know, you can invest as much as you want in new capital investment, uh, whatever, new computers, AI, robotics, robotics yeah. et cetera. Um, and that could provide another major sustainable disinflationary growth period, but it remains to be seen what the impact of that is. And I think, you know, we're moving from one regime of disinflationary growth to the promise of another, but we haven't yet seen the deliverable on that promise. And how do you get, how do you get the, uh, how do you get the animal spirits up on that? How do you get banks lending right now? You know, we talked about a little bit about the velocity of money, right? That, that the, the, the liquidity that's being provided is trapped in the banks because the banks don't want to lend because you can't, you know, how do you lend with the expectation that you're, going to get paid back or like what's your loan loss provision? Like it's a well, it's, the balance sheet constraints that have been introduced over the last 10 or 15 years. Right. So yeah. you've had this major move from on balance sheet lending at the bank to finance business expansion to off balance sheet. And I mean, we've, we've come into contact with that, right. Where there is a, uh, a tsunami of cash in non-bank, um, financial institutions, right? Private Mm -hmm. equity, infrastructure funds, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, that like we came into 2020 with $1.5 trillion in pre-committed money for private equity investment. That money's got to go somewhere. Where's it going, right? It's not like you have the manufacturing sector in the developed world focused on expansion right now. You've got most a lot of plants are still closed, right? So where is that money going? And so you got this- But this after, with opportunity cost so low, there's probably no such thing as a bad project, right? But I think where, where Mike was going with that- uh, I, I, might not be the wisest. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think Mike was headed for kind of like a 1980s, 1990s j- Japanese like window guidance- uh, uh, loan policies. I, I think he's going princess of yen on us a little bit there. Well, no, but you can do it two ways, right? One is you force the liquidity into the system, but you need a pull, you need a demand. So, so I think what Biden's trying to accomplish with a two trillion dollar green deal is, hey, let's get something to get excited about. Just like the New Deal was, let's build some dams and roads. A narrative, yeah, a narrative, we need a narrative to drive the animal spirits 
Now, if you think about walking that out, if you think about, a, hey, let's drop a couple of hundred year bonds, uh, we're going to drive a new new green deal, two trillion bucks, finance it. Now I've got engineering contracts. I've got, you know, I've got solar that's coming of age, pretty good tech and solar now and think of what we could do with that. Battery tech. Now I've got all of the downstream implications of figuring that out. Sort of what you said, Adam, all robotics, like let's let's get that next generation of productivity fast tracked. But I've got to stimulate animal spirits. And you know I've got to be the the lender of last resort, but also the buyer of last resort. So I'm going to fund these through the federal government to, to make sure that the contractors have the base rate and profitability to establish that. And then I let the machine start to go. So we get the solar panels, the wind tunnel through the middle of the U.S. That, now I'm letting my imagination run wild here. So then that provides the bid for the petrodollars. So we need 25 years to transition from all these petro states and these EM states Chile and the copper pot down there. We need these resources to build all of this infrastructure on the Green Deal. It's going to take 25 years. That gives them, those emerging countries that are resource-based, the opportunity to have some time to sell those resources into developed countries, developed world, Europe and, and the U.S. Those dollars get recirculated. They pay down for those projects, but there's this slower reduction in the in the petrodollar it steps in in the in the intervening period and at the end of sort of 25 to 50 years you now have this sort of green global economy and you know i'm painting a picture there that is hey let's get everybody excited because that gets the gets the velocity of money going now the funny thing is i feel like i'm um uh yosemite sam and i'm chasing bugs bunny and I'm lighting the match and I happen to be sitting in the cave full of dynamite <laughs> because <laughs> the velocity of money increases this much. I think it's going to be epic. What would what the t- yeah, give me a lever long enough and I'll move the world, right? The, oh, the, right now, the lever is of the most infinite length. And so just a small, a small movement can, um, can spark some pretty substantial externalities on the inflation. Let me front. take let me take the other side of that, Mike, because I think the velocity of money argument is it, there's a highly uh, uh, the, the demographic component here can't be overstated. So the the propensity on the marginal dollar for those who actually own those dollars is to save right now because those dollars are held You're by absolutely right. Yep. So so there is, I think, a generational uh, uh, aspect to this that I think might take it maybe five to 10 years more as, as those dollars trickle down into the, uh, into the Gen Xers and the millennials who will have a higher propensity to consume. And I think we might be getting into some fourth turns stuff here, but I, I, I think there's a, yeah. that's why, that's why I say you, you, we skate to one song and one song only. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. What does that right. mean? Gets I, I, Go ahead. When Mike was talking, I was like, God, now we have Strauss and Howe in this. Okay, so all right, that was a fourth turning reference that was just laid on the table. All right, Mike, when you were originally talking, I was going to start going down the path of uh, destabilizing Russia because you're talking about petrodollars and petroleum. Right. But then you, but then you laid that the word epic with respect to monetary velocity. And in the history of conversations about velocity, it's never been this interesting. <laughs> this. this this concept, which is usually so wonky, is, is so very easy to understand if anybody will ever bother to. And it's it's essentially, I mean, this goes back to Friedman, right? Milton Friedman. 
it's you can take an economy, you take the money supply, and you multiply it by the speed with which that money changes hands through society. That's the velocity. Me and you back and forth, we're that's a velocity of money. We're putting the money under our bed really slowly, it comes out. But then if it's Venezuela or Hungarian inflation or Weimar inflation, it goes fast. Yeah. You get your paycheck in nineteen nineties Brazil, you cash that paycheck and you spend it. That's Got a Brazilian it. right here on the call. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so that's where the money velocity, uh, it, sometimes you get a correlation between the two. The example I oftentimes give, it, it takes me two or three minutes to explain this, but I think it's absolutely critical for the listener. It's two of us on an island, okay? So, so Adam, it's me and you on an island. We've been marooned, and it, we have to now form a society, me and you. But you know what? You just want to live on the other side of the island. And between us, we have $100. And the, the, the velocity of money is 5.5, coincidentally, that was U.S. velocity of money in 2019. And that 5.5 represents you and I coming together and exchanging whatever it is we exchange. Uh, you know, I sometimes say I, I do repair work on your on your hut. And you, because you're very good at, at gathering the coconuts, you sell the coconuts to me. And we get together every few months. And we exchange it 5.5 times. And so our, our GDP is $550. There was $100 that was in our pocket when the ship sank. And what happens is, is... When the hurricane comes through to devastate our island, we can't really get together that frequently anymore. And so we have a, de a deflationary depression. The velocity of money has collapsed because we can't physically get across the island to trade with you until we clear this debris or get well from our hurricane. And so, you know, our economy has sank, sunk from $550 to some lower number. The counter example then is, okay, now we're back to normal. A year has passed. The hurricane's gone. We're back at a $550 economy where M times V, 100 times 5.5. But then suddenly somebody has a, a, you know, you know, like message in the bottle to make a reference to the song from the 80s. There's a message in the bottle, except there's money in the bottle. So there was $50 bill in the bottle. And now our money supply has gone up to $150. But there's no change in the amount of repairs I need to do to your hut or the number of coconuts that you're going to sell me because I can only drink so much coconut water through the year. So the only thing that's happened is, is our velocity has been at some stable state, but the money supply, it was the only variable that moved and it went up 50%. And so what people oftentimes say, and I think this is what Mike was alluding to is money velocity is low right now. Therefore let's just go have a beer and forget about it. Well, if it's low and it was also low last year, then there's been no change to the V part of M times V, but the only thing that went moon shooting is M, money supply. M1 money supply up 34% year over year. Now, when you look at 5.5, which is the speed with which we, you know, we changed it back 5.5 times last year, when the data came out from the Federal Reserve for the first quarter, now we were still on airplanes, still doing our thing in the first quarter, it's, it came down to 5.26. The question is, what will it come down to in the second quarter? And critically, if we come back to five five point X in 2021, then we have a real problem on our hand because we're right back to what stable state with the degree with which we engage in purchasing coffee and automobiles from each other. But the only thing that's changed is there's now all these incremental trillions of dollars floating around. And I don't know that there's enough people that appreciate it. And I, I think this is, goes to another conversation. 1970s inflation. Richard Nixon and, and, and Jimmy Carter and before Carter, Jerry Ford, I wasn't alive. I'm mid-career and I wasn't alive. And it, perhaps the only reason I have any real appreciation for 1970s inflation 
is because my old man was lined up around the block in January of 80 trying to buy some Krugerrands. And so I actually was raised with this natural fear of inflation solely because of, again, the old man's experience in 1970. I'm going to tell you, inflation's right around the corner. Ah, inflation's right around the corner. And so you grow up this way, and then you meet a bunch of people that all we've ever known is interest rates have been coming down, disinflation, Mm -hmm. gasoline's $2 a gallon in the United States. I mean, heck, you know, when we reached the trough in U.S. gasoline, in the 1990s, it was a buck, but it was a matter of routine to pay three or four dollars a gallon. So no concerns. Nobody can even conceptualize um, some sort of oil shock or or just rampant, ugly five, six, seven percent CPI. And I think it's a it's a serious risk. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, this is not just a, a 2020 question. I mean, obviously, 2020 has taken the phenomenon that's been in place since really. 2007 or 2008. And I think you could argue all the way back to Greenspan in 2000 mm. when he sort of preempted the Y2K issue, right? With a flood of, uh, of, of money. Um, but this has been building for a while. The lever, we sort of think about um, the money supply is the length of the lever and, and velocity is, you know, um, the, the amount that you're moving one, th- that small side of the lever in order to, to get that moving on the long end of the lever that the, the lever has been growing and growing and growing at an accelerating rate as a function of all of this, you know, whatever you want to call it, effectively money printing. And mm-hmm. now it's just sort of, we've, we've quantum leaped by an order of magnitude yeah. because of reactions in 2020, but it's not like it's just a 2020 issue. It's just that 2020 is put up, uh, you know, icing on the cake. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this lever that's been growing longer and longer and longer you have not seen a pickup in velocity over that same period. In fact, they've been growing the money supply to offset a sort of steady decline in the velocity for arguably 20 years. And so the lever now is insanely long and nobody believes that anyone's going to move it, right? How many, how many acts does it have? The effects are going to be interesting to observe. <laughs> how many acts does a play have? Three. Why? Well, because you've got to tell a story. I mean, human behavior just doesn't change right away. You know, it's got to work in 2000 and it's, Hey, worked again in 2008. Shit. This is easy. 2020 let's line them up and let them go. (laughs) I think policymakers have a very, very strong belief in their ability to actually manifest you know, the, the fact that if you're a clear commuter, communicator at the central bank about your intentions with monetary policy, it has actual um, predictable implications for asset prices. It makes them steady and makes them grow. And so you've had this theory that's now been proven out in, a, in several cases, largely proven out. The actions in 08 worked. The actions in 2020 are working um, but there's three acts to a play and then there's an end and you start a new play at some point. Maybe I don't, I'm, I'm not sure, but. And the other thing is, is there's this notion that, uh, oh, right now the, 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 the U S government's going to meet on Saturday morning and they're going to hash out the, the next set of $600 and $1,200 and then it'll be fine. Isn't it? Well, we, we opened this, this podcast, we're talking about the 17 million continuing claims. 
we're not going to roll into U.S. Thanksgiving or, or Christmas and suddenly we're going to be at full employment. There is going to be money that has to come from the federal government in the United States for a long period of time, of which none of us know. There was already a deep budget deficit in the United States last year. It was 4.9% of GDP. The street is pricing in 20% of GDP. They're wrong. It's going to be more. It's going to be 25 or 30% of GDP for calendar 20. And then in calendar 21, they're looking at slight double digits, slight 10 or 11 or 12% of GDP, which is worse than the worst budget deficit the U.S. experienced in the global financial crisis. That's in a steady state, everything's somewhat okay, 2021. 2022, put another 10 to 12% on it. Are we still doing this in 2023? I mean, you start running some serious, serious budget deficits. The only way to, it's on account of, you have to put money back into the system to try to keep this game going. It's it's very inflationary. It's, it's you know, I, I don't understand really why nobody's really talking about, wow, the U.S. debt dynamics are going to look like Italy in just yeah, the, the credit worthiness of the U.S. is going to be kind of the next domino in this equation. But the problem is when you have the marginal buyer of treasuries issued being the Fed and its primary dealers uh, mm-hmm. holding them in inventory, as long as they can keep that game up, this market can just continue. Yeah, but you're, you don't express the credit worthy, your bets on the credit worthiness of the U.S., in the credit markets, you express them in the dollar. Markets, exactly. Right? You, you, you let, and when what we've seen in the last week or two is an expression of that. And so it it might have it might be the beginning of this, and the and the and gold reacting as well kind of plays into this narrative. But I mean, as as Jeff was mentioning earlier, this might be that sort of peak that doesn't really follow through and we might well, the, the, you know it, everyone talks about the US dollar and the US and their and their um, fiscal and monetary policy efforts but you know the US doesn't act in isolation right it's not like the US dollar is going to fall off a cliff um, if the US uh, if US policy is aggressive but less aggressive than the policy actions of other global actors right I mean we haven't even seen we've we've, we've just started to see how the governments in the EU or the or the EMU are beginning to formally cooperate now on fiscal policy, the issuance of common debt, and I mean these these are baby steps, but they're in incredibly important qualitatively anyway directions. And if they can get their fiscal act together in cooperation with their Monetary Act, which has already been highly aggressive, you know, since two thousand and eight, um, you could see really. Um, substantial competition between the EMU and the U.S. in terms of who's going to... Yeah, but the euro would benefit. The benefit the, the, this uh, fiscal consolidation in the EU, is, I, I would posit, is actually bullish for the euro because it, it, it uh, conveys a strength to the euro. I mean, the, the easing side of the equation, uh, uh, they, they've been a lot more reluctant because of uh, the... Uh, how do they call it? The, the northern countries that are less willing to uh, to ease. I think. Well, it's, no, the Bundesbank has been has held the, up. Bund- not to yeah. mention the Bundesbank for sure. But uh, but but I mean, the fiscal consolidation I think is actually bullish for the euro. Uh, but to, to your point, Canada just went full ham on uh, the printing press this week, which was kind of remarkable. They were steady, 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 and all of a sudden, like Jeff was describing it, it just went 
What do they call that now? And, and, and you know what Fitch did to, to Canada's credit rating a, a, a few months ago? Right. <laughs> Down the delay. You know, Adam, you're exactly right when, it, when it, the U.S. doesn't operate in a vacuum. One of the, one of the nations that had the most stimulatory um, fiscal responses to this was the Germans. Right. The Germans went as a percentage of their GDP. They went all in. They had the, they had the concept for several years, the black zero. Right. And it was a very politically popular concept. Balance. The, this is crazy, guys. Balance the budget. I mean, I know it's I know. Wow. It's really wild. The Germans had done that um, for five or six years running, which so long as your GDP is growing and you have a zero budget deficit, then your then your debt to GDP ratio uh, changes the this, this situation from 25 years ago, Germany being the sick man of Europe was what they used to call it. And then that 80 or 85 percent debt to GDP ratio went down to something like 60. But now. All, you know, uh, just to unlock. But the isn't door. this what Keynes uh, prescribed? Right. Yeah, I mean, totally. everybody, everybody is a Keynesian now, but like Keynes wasn't all about stimulus all the time. Right. He was about when. When times are good, then you begin to, to, to sock away savings. Yep. And then that's available for you to spend when times are rough. He was right? anti-cyclical. It just so happened. Exactly. Just so happened. You wrote after a war. <laughs> Only well, yeah, the Germans exactly. did it. Nobody else. I'll tell you who else did it. And, and credit to them. You know, the, the Greeks. People don't realize this. But before COVID. I didn't know that. Really? Greece had a budget, uh, budget surplus. The austerity measures were so deep. Yes, yes, and this is, and, and you know, the Spaniards got it together too. Spaniards got their got their system together and became. You could see that in in Spanish bond spreads relative to German boons. It, it really came together in recent years. Uh, the one that was from the old, um, you know, southern peripheral nations. The only one that never really cleaned up its act in recent years was was Italy. But Spain, the pigs, right? They were the pigs. That's what they, yeah, that's what they, they, they called them. That, that went around for a while. And then there was the, the follow on that never really came on the bits. Do you remember the bits, the current account nations, Brazil, India, Indonesia, Turkey, right. and Africa. Um, they were supposed to be a dollar crisis in the bits. That was somebody you want to try to make a name for yourself as a strategist. You come up with these acronyms and I, uh, who came up with fangs? I think it was Jim Cramer. Maybe I, I, I maybe, you know what? Forget these podcasts. We just need to come up with an acronym. Yeah, we just need to <laughs> Let me know when we come up with a good acronym and we'll put our names on love it. And we'll see I, love, can- I, I love that. There's one question. What happens when the 10-year government uh, yield goes goes negative? And uh, it, it's we have this conversation. It When you drill down this hole, it goes deep, man. There's like a lot of shit that just does not make a lot of sense. Now, now, Philbrick, you had a Freudian slip. Not what happens when the ten year goes negative. What happens? <laughs> if, that person said, "What happens if the ten year goes negative?" Right. Amen, brother. Amen. Right. My bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> as recently right. as we're going by memory here, by uh, 2018, where it's something like 3.26, I want to say on a on a U.S. ten year Treasury. Yeah. Um, so something to consider. Something to consider that you know you could. It, it, what what happens if we get a few ugly CPI prints and then suddenly we have to start bringing up the issue of quantitative tightening again? Um, that person was right to use the if question. I mean, heck, yeah. interest rates can go they can only go one of two ways. They can certainly go negative. Yeah. Um, but to, the, language was, the language was changed too with the Fed to to accommodate for not a zero bound but a lower bound. Yeah, but I would also <laughs> say- interesting. 
the banking lobby in the U.S. seems a lot stronger than the banking lobby in Europe. I think I think it would be a lot harder to imagine. Not impossible, definitely not impossible. The language change in the uh, Fed minutes definitely uh, opened the door window. Let's call it a window for that. But uh, seems like a, a, a harder pill to swallow in the U.S. The negative race. I don't know, Jeff. Do you, do you have any strong thoughts on that? Well, guys, I just told you that there's a possibility the birth rate could rise. Fair <laughs> point. I think I might be the only one that can conceptualize or at least entertain that thesis. And so, therefore, it would seem to me that if, if the deflation story is perpetual graying of society and that work from home as a concept reverses that, then the path of least resistance for interest rates is higher. Every time you say you talk about how the birth rate could rise. I keep thinking about that survey that they performed near the beginning of lockdown, where they surveyed people about whether their, whether their sexual activity was going to increase or decrease during lockdown. And all the men said, like 80% of them said, yep, it's going to increase. And although like 20% of women said it was going to increase. <laughs> so then and, 20% and, yeah. of women were busy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that we do differentiate between, again, I don't think that somebody's looking to, I think there will be a decline in 2020 and probably maybe into 2021 for the reasons that you said earlier in the podcast, Mike. I mean, it's when you have 17 million people on continuing jobless benefits, they're not exactly saying, let's go, let's go have a yeah. But uh, But I think structurally, we could be looking at a situation where we've taken a considerable burden out of the rat race. The rat race for tens of millions has been greatly ameliorated. Yeah. And it needs to be priced into our calendar. That, that is big, right? Maybe I'm, maybe you've I'm, got two hours. You've got two hours of productivity in everybody's day that is going to some somewhere else. The average commute was about an hour to and from a workplace. So that has been reduced dramatically across the board. So there is some amount of gain that comes from that. Whether it's all like societal gain, you're 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 having a better life, or you're more productive. But I think you've had a your your point was really strong too. I think Mike, like I, I buy some of that. Absolutely, you you remove some of the frictions. You add some time to everybody's day. Not everyone's day, though. The point is, you only add time to the days of people that work in information oriented yeah. jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is a small, very small, but growing portion of um uh, of de- of uh, developed economies. But it's offset also by the by the fact that, I mean, one of the biggest negative predictors of the number of children that you're going to have is your level of education, right? So you've got level of education predicts whether or not you're a participant in the knowledge economy. It also negatively predicts your the number of children you're going to have. Yeah. And so I think these are these are two competing dynamics, and it, it'll be interesting. I agree, Jeff, to sort of see how how this all plays out. Well, and then the other thing is also we've delayed the family formation. Um, oh, right. Well, I wanted to mention that if you're a bachelor right now, yes, we, we've got one of our partners is a bachelor. He's like, this is a train wreck. Yeah, <laughs> you and so yeah, people at, at prime childbearing age are not getting together and meeting, and, and so yeah. it, that could end up being another issue in the in basically in courting. Um, and, yep. and it's, it's critical to consider. I mean, how long? Will this go on? If we reopen, then what we've basically done is we've accelerated the work from home by 10, 15, 20 years in a matter of three to six months, yep. which is fine if we're all 
back in the game in the third or fourth quarter and being on airplanes and stuff because there's a vaccine. But if this thing is droning on, then we have to be more sympathetic to, to, to Butler's argument here where no dating, no babies, right? Yeah. You're trapped in your house. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, that has been one hour and 11 or 12 minutes and has gone across many different domains and aspects. Uh, that was awesome. That's exactly what the happy hour is about. It's just us getting together and uh, shooting the poop, if you will. And uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, I appreciate you taking the time, Jeff. That's great having you on. I knew we were going to kind of get into the, the the sphere of your Renaissance manhood and you were going to take <laughs> us in directions that, uh, <laughs> that we couldn't anticipate. I loved it. I, and um, I appreciate your time. And I, I appreciate everybody uh, who's chimed in with some questions and all that good stuff. And we'll see you next week. We've got a great lineup coming over the next four or five weeks as well. And uh, yep, uh, to Jason's point, yep, you're right. We got to work on the feng shui. We're not in a permanent residence yet. So, you know, you got to keep it for some time. Uh, are we getting a room raider? Is a guy doing a room raider on us right now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we He's, weren't going to use the uh, COVID excuse. That, that's uh, right. The only reason you can see the art is because I've shaved my head, man. There's just, you know, there's so much more surface area behind me you can see because the hair is not in the way, right? So that guy has a great profile pic. That's a cool pic. Yeah. I know, yeah, looking off into the distance with, with that great hair. And the good beard. Shirt. Nice beard. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, cheers. Thanks, guys. Yep, cheers, guys. Thanks, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, fellas. Thanks. Thanks. All right, you have a great weekend. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.